We're ramping up on a new series, all right? Today is our launch of this series called Impossible God. Impossible God. Those words seem counterintuitive in a way, but we're, we're looking at it at what God has done and what he is doing as really an impossible thing. And of course, there are many people that look at the God of the Bible and think that that's impossible, right? And even, even you and I, some of you in the room as believers, as Christians, you, there's a difficulty sometime with really believing that, that all things are possible. See, there's, a, there's an imp- impossible nature to God that, that we need to retain with him. And as we ramp up into resurrection season, we need to see that the seeds of the resurrection are where that impossibility started from. We need to see what Jesus is really all about, that he was describing God, and he was revealing God himself, that God is way beyond our way of thinking, according to the scriptures, that he's beyond our imagination, that he's beyond our own possibilities. And then the words of Vicini, from one of the best, most incredible movies of all time, the classic, Princess Bride. There are simply so many things about God that seem inconceivable. Truly, you have a dizzying intellect. That would be inconceivable. As I told you, it would be absolutely, totally, and in all other ways, inconceivable. 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 You give us in the heart. I don't think it means what you think it means. I don't think you th- know what it think you think it means. I don't think it means what you think it means. This word, I'm just going to give you some synonyms for it. Unthinkable, unimaginable, unbelievable, incredible, implausible, ludicrous, mind-blowing, mind-boggling. These are the words that describe God for us but see this is why jesus was sent he was sent to reveal god colossians 1 15 says the son is the image of the invisible god he's the way he looks he came here the things he does the things he says this reveals god hebrews 1 3 says the son is the radiance of god's glory and an exact representation an exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word which is why we look to mark Chapter 10, we're going to look at what Jesus said about this idea. And as he was setting out on his journey, verse 17 says, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commands, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, All these I have kept from my youth. Now, that's kind of a bold statement. Can you imagine saying that to Jesus? So, verse 21, he says, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. This is is Jesus' version of that little southern charming phrase, Bless your heart. (laughs) Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. 
And Jesus looked around at his disciples and said to them, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus was saying something here about a paradigm, an idea. And his, the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. If you're sitting here and you think, oh, that's not talking about me because I'm not wealthy. Wrong, you live in the top 3% of the world in wealth. Doesn't matter, $30,000 puts you in the top 3%. $30,000 a year. See, Jesus is saying something here to this man, and, and Jesus goes on, and he kind of emphasizes it, and then he, then he kind of talks in this, um, like, over-speak, like, over-description of what it is, how it works, and how it, how it happens. He says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. One Bible scholar I was looking at in this verse said, this is classic Jewish overspeak. <laughs> this is like, you can catch up with God as soon as you bottle up the oceans in a bottle. Right. right, he's saying, it's really impossible. And I think he meant it was impossible. And look at his disciples, in verse 26, it says, and they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus was saying, you can't take anything with you into eternal life. When you go there, you have to be relieved of all your luggage and all your baggage. You have to let go of everything if you want to receive eternal life. You have to relinquish your hold on everything and let it be in control. Let it be in possession by Jesus himself. Reminds me of the rich old man who died, and they said, how much did he leave? And they said, all of it, because <laughs> you can't take it with you. And Jesus is pointing this out. They say, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at him and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. I want you to notice that the issue that Jesus is addressing with this young man is not his ability to obey the Ten Commandments. Sometimes we get obsessed with our ability to obey the Ten Commandments. We think that's what makes us a good Christian. There's something more. There's something that God is dealing with in this man and in you and I. Jesus is interested not in his money. He's interested in what's going on on the inside of this man in his heart, inside this man's heart. The series of questions, what they did for this man was it exposed what he was really attached to, what held his heart. And you know what? That's exactly how Jesus will come to all of us. Every one of us, Jesus will kind of, he'll come to you and he'll begin to work in your life and he will zero in on that one thing that you do not want to give him. He will find it. He will locate it, and then he'll just ask you for it. He'll let you walk away, as he did with this young man. But he will find it, and he will say, you'll be so much better off. What I have to give you instead of this is going to be so much better. So, I think so many of us are just like this rich young ruler because we're wrestling with two deceptive 
dichotomies, a, a deceptive dichotomy where there's, it's either this one or that one. We live our lives with this dichotomy of, of thinking in, in our minds, you know, as a Christian, sure, everything's possible with God. And yet, even though we believe, we find ourselves living in a different way. We say we believe that God provides, but yet how we live our lives reveals that if we don't take care of ourselves, if we don't make things happen, nobody's going to make it happen for us. God certainly can't necessarily be the provider, right? I got to do it. How is giving to the poor going to help me get eternal life? You see the problem? Like, see, you can give to the poor and it can be eternal life to your soul. Or you can give to the poor out of some kind of legalism or some kind of duty, and it still won't mean what God wants it to mean. It won't become what God wants it to become in your heart. We say that we believe that God loves us unconditionally, but yet how we live our lives reveals we still think we have to earn God's love somehow by our good works. We say that we believe that God heals, and yet we think we, <laughs> the way we live reveals that we think we're the exception that he won't heal us. But we, we say we believe that nothing is impossible with God and yet how we live our lives reveals that we also believe that there are certain things that are simply impossible for him. Things that we're facing. So we end up with these two, two ideas, this dichotomy that pulls us apart. But Jesus asks us to give them up in order to follow him. In order to follow him, why does he do this? Because it's a, it's a clash of two ideas, a clash of two paradigms. It is the clash of the earthly and human paradigm that I know what's best or I, you know, our, we're so advanced. Our, our technology, the stuff, I mean, we've sent people to the moon. I mean, we can see pictures from outer space. The deeper we go into the, the, the atom, the atoms that are, exist all around us, the more we figure out about the human body. I mean, we just know so much, and I think it's tempting to think, oh, we figured everything out. I think it's tempting to live that way even as a Christian. The kingdom of God functions under a different paradigm, right? The two paradigms are an earthly and human paradigm, and, and the, the kingdom of God is a different paradigm. And that, key, that paradigm is all things are possible. And I want you to, as we ramp up into Passion Week, this is Palm Sunday, and as we go past Good Friday and to the resurrection, and as we begin to speak about the power of resurrection life, the possibilities that are involved in resurrection life. As we look to water baptism on April 30th, where, we're, where we're, we want to see tons of people water baptized coming to Christ, I think it is one of the most incredible miracles when a heart is transformed. And that's what we want to talk about over the next few weeks, how God works in our lives and changes our way of thinking. Go to John 11, and we're just going to read this story about Lazarus. Because it was, a, it was a, a really profound story in the story of Jesus going to the cross. This was the moment that the religious leaders, when, when they saw Lazarus raised from the dead, th it convinced them, we've got to get rid of this guy. If you read at the end of the chapters, he, they were so threatened by Jesus and what he was offering. 
They thought their, their own way of life was threatened. And, and so we, we're going to look at this powerful miracle of what was possible with God. Look at verse 1. In chapter 11 of John, it says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, The sickness, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed there where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Isn't this interesting? I want you to notice the relational language here that God loved these people. He was in relationship with them. And they knew it, and so they sent word for him to come and heal Lazarus. But Jesus waits two more days. He waits two more days before he actually comes. And it, this, in a way, foreshadows what Jesus himself is moving towards. His own death, his own resurrection. So Jesus' strategic decision to wait two days, I want you to see this, is rooted in something. It's rooted in his trust in God in his timing, his heavenly father. His, it's rooted in trust in God for Lazarus, but also for himself, for his own future. Verse eight says, but Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you and yet you were going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble for they see his, this world's, by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble for they have no light. What is Jesus saying? His disciples are afraid to go to this location because just a few days, just a few weeks ago, Jesus was there and the religious leaders were ready to stone him. And it's dangerous. And so Jesus begins to talk about, okay, walking in the daytime and not walking at night. And what is Jesus talking about here? Recently, I, I was thinking about this, this passage and I remembered that my son, Taylor, is, um, he's 20 years old, and he had all his friends over at our house, and they were playing this game called Murder in the Dark. It's a very wholesome family game. He's, he's, he's been playing this game, Murder in the Dark. What you do is you turn off all the lights in the house, every light, so it's pitch black, and then there's one person who is <laughs> the murderer, hallelujah, and, and, and that person then... Um, catches people in the dark and so everybody's trying to escape from it but you're running around in the dark and so it's such a crazy game people love it and so they're running around in our house we weren't home at the time but they're running around in our house Taylor uh, obviously we weren't home at the time uh, Taylor hears somebody and he starts running and as he runs he runs he thinks he's running through a doorway you know feeling his way through but he misses the doorway by about six inches and hits the door jam straight in his head and a huge like hematoma comes up like like hurts his skull and, 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 and so he's bleeding down his eye, and it's just awful. We're like, Taylor, what were you doing? Oh, we were playing murder in the dark. What's that? Oh, you turn off the lights, and you run around the house. Oh. Brilliant. 
See, <laughs> teenagers do things like this, and it's fun. It's fun, but you can also get hurt. Humans like to run around in the dark too. You and I like to run around in the dark, but it can be deadly. It can hurt you. Jesus is saying here, look, what I'm talking about is walking in the light means I want you to trust God as we go do this. I want, I want, you, to, I want you to walk with me and trust that God has a plan and a purpose. That's what he's saying to his disciples. I want you to choose to walk in the light of his purpose. Remember, he's coaching them. They're afraid they're going to get killed. He's saying, look, trust God and walk with me. It's daytime. We'll get there in plenty of time. And he's using it as an analogy. Walk in the light of trusting God instead of the darkness. Instead of walking in the darkness of fear and torment and apprehension. And that is a choice that all of us have to make. And the disciples needed this bit of advice because over the next few weeks, they were gonna face the greatest challenge they'd ever known. Jesus was to go to the cross. He was to be celebrated, but then humiliated. He was go to go to the cross and die for the sins of the world. He would take on the sins of the whole world, but they couldn't see it. They couldn't figure it out. They would be challenged to run. They would be threatened. They couldn't figure it out until after the miracle of the resurrection. Verse 11 says, after he had said this, he went to, on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. Jesus continues to kind of talk in this code language. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. <laughs> we look back and we think they were dumb, but they, see, they were still looking through, the, through a paradigm that you and I struggle with today. A paradigm of the here and now versus the paradigm of God's kingdom coming in power. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep, so he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, guys. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, so that you'll believe but let us go to him. And so, as was the norm, the disciples are kind of confused. He's trying to coach him through. But look at what Thomas says. Thomas is the one. He speaks up. Verse 16, he says, Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. I know, we look at Thomas, and we, he's kind of a skeptic in our history. We kind of look at him as the skeptic. He's called Doubting Thomas, right? He, he has this way that he appears in the scriptures, but I'd like to suggest to you today that he wasn't wrestling with doubt. I, I don't think he was a skeptic. I think he was a realist. I think he wanted, some, I want, he wanted things to be real. He wanted this thing with Jesus to be authentic, he wanted to go and be willing to fight with Jesus. He wanted to be, he, he was willing to go. He said, look, if Jesus is going to go there, we're going to go there too, because I'm ready to die with him. Strangely enough, it still wasn't the right paradigm. It was close. See, Thomas was willing to go and fight and die. He couldn't quite get the concept of going and laying down your life and dying, which is where Jesus was headed. And so Thomas didn't understand the paradigm, the, 
There was only one possible outcome for Thomas. We're going to go there. We're going to get killed. <laughs> this is just the way it is. Anything else was impossible in his mind. Verse 17, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. Two miles. Even urban dwellers like you and I could have made that trip in one afternoon. Some of you would have been really out of breath, but you could have made it. You could have easily made it. And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. I want you to notice Mary, Martha is frustrated. She's frustrated. Jesus is late She's upset, she's mad, she's disappointed, she's heartbroken. She's seen Jesus heal people before. If only he would have come earlier, he could have healed her. He could have healed Lazarus. If only he would have done what Martha wanted him to do, she wouldn't have to go through this. If only. I wonder how many of us here today have and if only God would have done what I thought he should do. If only. There's so many things that we think should happen. God has it. He has it in his hand. He wants to walk with you in it. He wants to walk through it with you. Verse 23 says, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know. She says, I know he will rise again at the resurrection of the last day. Now, what Jesus is doing here is so profound. Instead of looking at the past, instead of dreaming about what might have been, Jesus pivots and goes to the future. He's not even speaking about what can be now. He goes to the future, and Jesus invites Martha to look to the future. Martha believes. She says, yes, I know that this is true, that there will be a resurrection of the dead at some point. See, this is Jewish thought. All the Jews believed. Isaiah 65 and 66 talk about this, that there is a, a new heaven and a new earth that will come, that the end of all days, there will be a massive resurrection of God's people. Martha believes this, and here in this response, in this moment, it shows this wasn't very comforting to her. But then Jesus says the oddest thing. Check this out, verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though he die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Such a great phrase. You should write it in your notes. Do you believe this? Jesus is asking you. Do you believe that you can have life that goes beyond this life? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. This is kind of code for her saying, yes, I think I know who you are, but I'm not sure what else you're talking about. I trust in you, and Jesus interjects a whole new paradigm for Martha. Because, listen, resurrection is not just a doctrine, nor is it something that is just in the future. It's the resurrection is a person. The resurrection is a person. And he was there standing in front of Martha asking her to make a huge leap of faith and trust. And see, what's going on here was that the future had burst into the present. 
The future had burst into the present with Martha in this moment. The new creation and with it resurrection life had come from the end of time to the middle of time. The one who was at the beginning of time came to the middle to reveal himself. Verse 28 says, after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. And when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. And when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Listen, the idea that we know how things should work is deeply ingrained. Our thought process, here it is again, Mary says it, it could have been different. If only you'd been here, we might not have to suffer this agony. If you'd just come earlier, you could have healed Lazarus. But now it's too late. Verse 33 says, but when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Sometimes we take this passage and we lock it up into verses. We say, well, this happened, then this happened. That's not how life unfolds. I want, I want to offer you the suggestion that it all sort of happened simultaneously. Jesus is there. The, the mourners show up, and they're crying, and they're weeping with Martha and Mary. Mary clings to his feet, and she's just in pain. She's in agony. She's in grief. They're, 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 he's been dead for four days, and, and Jesus enters into the story, he enters the grief of the moment. These tears are real, he's not faking it. It is his, I wanna suggest to you that Jesus' humanity and divinity were coming together in moments like this. That he also faced his own dichotomy, his own temptation to pull them apart, but no, he, dis, he enters in, he is willingly surrendered his humanity and his divinity, and he stands there and weeps for Lazarus, for this community, for what's going on here. Jesus enters it just the way you and I are supposed to live here and enter our communities around us. Verse 34, where have you laid him? He asked, come and see. And, and they replied, come see, Lord. They replied, Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Now the whole place is thinking these things. If only Jesus would have come earlier. Now think about what was happening here. Mary's crying. Everything's happening. And there's sorrow. And what I want you to see, One Chapel family, is that Jesus enters the world to experience what we experience. He's entering this suffering and to communicate that it's not over. <laughs> He's here to communicate that there is possibility still. He's here to communicate to you and to me his presence and his peace and his strength. I know, I know. Some of you are facing really hard things right now and you're looking at me, you're going, Pastor Ross, you don't know. I mean, what I'm facing is real. This is hard. 
this is difficult. I don't know how to do this. I know it sounds impossible for God to reach down into your moment and to help you see and to help you believe that the impossible is possible for him. Verse 38, Jesus once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid over the entrance. And he said, take away the stone. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. One translation says, by this time he stinketh. He said on my boys sometimes, oh, by this time you stinketh, go take a bath. Martha is firmly entrenched in the here and the now. Okay, I believe you, but Jesus, hey, this is four days. This is like, uh, this isn't real. He's stinky. I had a dead animal in my backyard last year. I think it was an opossum. The kids found it, and we didn't know what to do with it exactly. It's dead. It's gone. And so we wrapped it up in two bags, like one bag and then another plastic bag, and then we tried to throw it in our trash. Sadly, we forgot to put our trash can out. I think to myself, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? My brother-in-law, his trash comes tomorrow. I'm going to put it in the car and go. So I take it. I I get it out of the trash. I put it in my trunk. Look, this is not so, I don't have acres. I have a little yard. It's Belterra. It's like this little planned community. We don't do this. (laughs) So I think I'm just going to put it in my car. I put it in the trunk of the car. And within 20 seconds, it's like, oh, my gosh. I'm driving up. It was in the car less than five minutes. Less than five minutes. We're there. We're getting, we throw it in the can. My car did not stop stinking for five months. I'm not kidding. Five months. Somehow the stink got in the fibers of the car. I don't know. What really messed me up was how those molecules, the stench got into my nose and into my body. And I was like, ugh. Hey, hey, the stench of death is vicious. It is ferocious. It is vile. It is tyrannical. It takes over everything it touches. You and I try to fight it. Jesus provides the solution to death. Jesus provides the solution to sin that causes death trying to seek life, an alternative way from Jesus. That's what sin is. Being willing to find life here, eternal life, even into our present, looking ahead to eternal life in the future. Jesus has come to deal with the violent stench of death, and it is sticky. It hangs on. And you and I, we are called to hang on to Jesus in a way that deals with that death. That's the only way you get to see the impossible be done. Verse 40 says, Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. 
I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of these people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out in his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. I am in so much trouble right now. I want you to get it. Get the point of what I was just saying so that I don't get in more trouble. This is the moment Jesus is saying what he wants to say to you and to me. By the power of God and for God's glory, Lazarus is raised from the dead. One of the things I think, think is so interesting about this story is throughout this situation, Jesus was actually thinking of his own journey of rising from the dead. So we have very little time, three points. Here it is, number one. Three inconceivable paradigms. I want you to see them. Jesus joins us in our suffering moments. Just like Martha and Mary, God can and God is able to heal. He's able to provide. He's able to open doors. But here's the thing. We're often looking for a way out. Instead of looking for him, we're looking for a way out. Instead of looking for him to come and join us in this moment, the resurrection and the life, to join us in this moment of impossibility, we miss it. We're trying to get a way out, but then it seems like God doesn't show up. I don't know about you, but God always seems late to me. So he's always late, according to my schedule. Somehow, God has a purpose and a plan. What you see in the resurrection is God's purpose and plan unfolding. What you see in the story of Lazarus is God getting glory. What you see is all these people starting to believe because of what happened to Lazarus. And so this is, this is what you have to get from today is Jesus is joining you right there. That's what Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says. We don't have time to read it now. That's your homework this week. You take it home with you. Number two, Jesus emphasizes our future, not our past. He's joining you, but he's coming to say, hey, there's better coming. What you're facing right now, I know it seems bad, but there is better coming. And I'm here to make sure that it does, that it comes. He's focused not on our past. Listen, the devil wants you to think about your past. Every time you make a mistake, every time you fail, every time you face a hard time, the devil wants to accuse you and say, see, you're so foolish. You're so stupid. It'll never work for you. God himself sent Jesus to say, no, I can fix this. I can heal you. I can walk with you. I can bring the power of God into your moment, into this situation. And I want you to see that the past is gone, and I want you to look to the future. No more I wish I would have. Now only I will. Jesus brings the, the future into your moment Psalm 103 and 2 Corinthians 4, talk about that. I want you to read those this week. That's your homework. Number three, Jesus makes the impossible possible. See, Jesus told Mary and Martha that the resurrection is part of your future, but he didn't just say that. He said, he stood in front of them and said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Jesus brought the reality of the future into the middle of their time, into the middle of their fears, into the middle of their frustration. He brought his reality into their reality. That's what Mark 9 and John 14 talk about. 
Just like Jesus, we have this commission to bring his future into this present time, into other people's frustrations and needs and fears and death. And I want you to hear this. This is the last thing I'll say to you before we come to the Lord's table. Look, Lazarus wasn't resurrected. He was resuscitated. Because a few years later, he died. Right? That's a, that's a thing you have to see because... Because Jesus wasn't starting resurrection with Lazarus. Jesus was resurrection. Jesus' resurrection changed everything for Lazarus as well. Jesus' resurrection changed what seemed totally impossible. It was a foreshadowing of what would happen to Jesus. But it's a foreshadowing of what happens to us when we believe in the resurrection and life. When we relinquish our way of life and decide we're going to embrace him and who he is. Close your eyes, bow your head. I